If you're new with us, we've been working our way through that book together over the course of these last several months, and we're in chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 7 this morning, and we're actually going to be in those seven verses for the next two weeks. Um, so I have uh, the distinct privilege of uh, drilling down in verse 7 this week is where we're going to be um, spending some time. But we're going to read those, that whole text together this morning, as we will again next week. Um, and I get the, the, the privilege of trying to land a few body blows on our men this morning um, and take the gloves off a little bit. Um, so I just want to prepare you for that in advance. And next week, Kevin gets the distinct privilege of affirming the inner beauty of our women. And so I get to kind of beat up on the guys a little bit this morning. Kevin gets to come along and affirm the women. I'm not sure who's up for more criticism over the next couple of weeks, but we have a new email address, critique at redeemerrc.com. So feel free to go ahead and email us there. First uh, Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's read together. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Listen, if you get on an airplane and you fly from the East Coast to the West Coast as you fly across the continent, one of the things that you'll see if you look down below, or particularly even if you get in a car and you drive from the East Coast to the West Coast across our nation, one of the things that becomes evident is that as you move from East to West, the topography of the land changes. And so as you move from the East Coast and you cross the Appalachian Mountains, you rise up in that one location, you come back down, you cross a lot of fertile farmland in the heartland of our nation. And as you move over toward the West Coast, you begin to approach the, the, the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And as you approach the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, the peaks of those summits rise up tens of thousands of feet above the surface of, of the prairies and the fertile farmland and the plateaus over which you've just been traveling. And as you see those mountains rise from the earth, it's a rather awe-inspiring vision, isn't it? Those of you who have been to the mountains or you've maybe settled in the foothills for a while or maybe you've driven through there or flown over there, it's a pretty awe-inspiring vision. It's very majestic. It's very beautiful. As you see the topography change, the distinctions and elevation creates this, this prominence or this contrast between that flat, low-lying land and those, at those peaks and those elevations in the summits of those mountains. But as you get up into the, the, the peaks of the, color of, the, of the Rocky Mountains and you, you travel southwest from there, you're going to descend down into a very arid climate, a very desert region. And in the midst of that very arid, desertous region, I don't think the word desertous is a word, but we're going to go with it. Um, but in the, in the midst of that region, you find one of the, the most amazing natural wonders on the face of the earth and the, as, a, as a canyon sinks a mile beneath the surface. 
In the Grand Canyon, the topography changes. It goes, from low, it goes from this fertile farmland up into the peaks of the Rocky Mountains, and you travel southwest down into the Grand Canyon, and you come back up again, you end up on the majestic beaches of California. Right? So the topography of our nation changes as you move from east to west or from west to east. There's distinction. There's differences. And those differences create beauty. Those differences create all those differences create majesty. Those differences create wonder. Whenever you compare and contrast those distinctions. But listen, if we lived in a world, I want you to imagine just for a moment that if we lived in a world, a world where there was no difference in elevation, a world in which the Mariana Trench did not exist and the, 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 the Mount Everest at the heart of the Himalayas wasn't on the face of the earth, a world in which there were no changes in elevation, a world in which there were no changes in topography, then we wouldn't have those awe-inspiring moments as we see the peaks rise and the canyons sink. If we lived in a world that was absolutely flat and had been flattened out, then we wouldn't have those moments of beauty and wonder and splendor and majesty and awe. And listen, we, you, you and I, we live in a day, we live in a time in which the prevailing culture around us, we've been looking at First Peter now for quite some time and we've seen that we are resident aliens here. We've got green card status here on earth, but this is not our home. It's not where our true citizenship lies but we live in the midst of a broader culture as a citizens of God's kingdom um, in this earthly kingdom and in this earthly kingdom among which we live now in this day and this time, there is an attempt to flatten out the topography of humanity. To flatten the topography of humanity. And what I mean by that is this. We live in a day, we live in a time in which there are folks who want to flatten the topography of humanity by saying that there is really no difference between those whom God has created male and those whom God has created female. There's no difference between men and women. In fact, they would say that they are interchangeable. And when they become interchangeable, then the world becomes a very beautiful place to live. But if you flatten the topography, there's no peaks, there's no summits, there's no canyons, there's no depths, there's no awe, there's no wonder, there's no majesty but they're trying to flatten it out. A place where gender-neutral bathrooms are being proposed and installed. A place where many people that assume being raised by two moms or two dads is the same thing as being raised by a mother and a father. A place where those who are born male can transition to become female and those who are born female can transition to become male. And it's something in this earthly kingdom that gets celebrated and applauded and gets you on award stages to receive accolades because it's a very courageous thing that you've just done by moving from what you were born to be as a man to becoming a woman or vice versa. And it's not just in the culture that we have these winds circulating trying to flatten out the topography of humanity. Because listen, in the church as well, in the church as well, oftentimes, even inside the church, many of us will be hard-pressed to give an answer to questions of our sons if they should ever ask us, Daddy, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? Or our daughters, if they were to ask you, Mommy, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? Listen, many of us may be able to talk around issues of anatomy and athletics, but beyond that, it becomes really challenging for us. 
How, are you going to resp- how do we respond to those kinds of questions in a world living as sojourners that wants to flatten out the topography? Well, the Bible presents a much different picture of gender than the world and the culture in which we live. If we're to live as citizens of God's kingdom and not take our cues from this earthly kingdom, then there's a different vision of gender that we have. In his book, Manhood Restored, Eric Mason He speaks of the contrast between how God brought the created order into existence by the word of his mouth, but formed humanity with his hands. Listen to what he says. He said, God formed man. What he says here is predominantly speaking of man as in male, but I think it's also applicable to what he says, uh, what, what happened in Genesis 2 when he forms the woman as well. God formed man. This term is rich in depth and meaning. God handmade man by sculpting him from what he had already created. Formed means fashioned, shaped, or forged, usually by plan or design. The term implies an intentionality. Forming isn't haphazard. To form is to devise, prepare, or in other words, to think about future actions with a particular plan of action as an extension of forming an object by artistic and careful design. God is not a mad scientist unknowingly experimenting with creation to see what he would come up with. He is a thoughtful, careful, loving artist who knows exactly what he's after in the process of creation. That means God did not haphazardly create man, but was fully aware of his expectations and desires of his creation even before he began. That's that's a much different view of gender than the view of the that gets circulated by the prevailing winds of the culture in which we live. There's a much different view of gender as citizens of God's kingdom than there is as one of this earthly kingdom where you can't flatten out the topography because God didn't design it to be flat. He designed it for there to be distinctions and differentiations that would stand out and create prominence or contrast that would, that would provoke awe and wonder of how artistic and creative God is in the way that he's formed us. In fact, the rest of the sweep of Scripture testifies to this. See, there's a lot of folks even in the church who want to flatten out gender differences. And so that there's no difference between male and female. And they want to say, well, gender differences really are a byproduct of sin and the, 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 the occasion of the fall. And yet when you go back into Genesis chapter 2, one of the things you see is that prior to the fall, you see that God creates man to have dominion over all creation. And then he parades all the animals in front of him, the lions, tigers, and bears, and Oh my, every other thing that he's created and there's not a suitable what? Helper found for the man. And so what does he do? He puts the man to sleep under deep anesthesia. He removes a rib from his side. He forms the woman and he brings the man out of anesthesia there in a surgical suite and he lays eyes on the woman for the first time and he calls her woman for she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. In other words, there's another one like me. Another one like me who's suitable the suitable helper that Adam couldn't find among the birds of the, of the air and the, the beasts of the field. It's a suitable helper for him as he fulfills God's creation mandate of exercising dominion over creation and creating culture. He's got a helper to come alongside of him and fulfill the responsibilities God has placed upon him. 
So in Genesis 2, you see the man is the head and the woman it becomes the helpmate. From Genesis 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, everything gets all jumbled up. Everything gets all distorted and defaced. Because in Genesis chapter 3, you have sin enters into the world. And when sin enters into the world, things begin to come unraveled. So that on the, as a result of the, of the fall, whenever God pronounces the curse upon, the, 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 upon humanity, he says to the woman that your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. What you see is God's intention in creation was this beautiful, awe-inspiring, complementarian vision of gender. But in the fall, what you see is it gets distorted and defaced and, and withered. It's not all inspiring any longer because now he says, the woman, your desire shall be for. Other translations say against your husband. That's not like, hey, I want to hang out with you and walk around the lake and hold hands as the sun sets and sip coffee and talk about our future. It's not that kind of desire for him. The desire is to be, to have control over him. So the distortion of biblical femininity in the fall and then the distortion of biblical masculinity is that the man will respond by ruling over her, heavy-handed, domineering, and oppressive. But then you fast forward through the sweep of Scripture and all kinds of chaos ensues after the fall, and then you come to the pinnacle of all human history. And you see Jesus Christ is born of a virgin, and he's born to live the life that I could not live, that you could not live, die the death that I deserve to die, that you deserve to die, and then to be raised from the grave, to be resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father from whence he would return. And Jesus comes to begin to reverse the curse that you see in Genesis chapter 3. It's a part of his redemptive work. He begins to turn things on the back right side up, the things that got turned upside down, to turn it right side up. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul writes about marriage, when he writes about husbands and wives, when he writes about Jesus and his church, he calls men to love and to lead and to look like Jesus, not like Adam. He says, you have a responsibility to lead your wives, to serve your wives, to sacrifice for your wives, to care for your wives. And wives, he says, you should come under that leadership. You should come under that headship. In the same way that the church comes under Jesus' headship. So there's this, there's this beautiful picture in Ephesians 5 of God reversing everything that gets turned on its head in Genesis chapter 3. So the distinctions and differences in gender are not a product of the fall. Those distinctions and differences and distortions, I say distortions of gender are a byproduct of the fall, but distinctions were part of God's original creative intention. He had it in his mind and in his heart from the time that he conceived it. So we can't flatten out these differences. It, the scripture paints this this beautiful picture of biblical masculinity and biblical femininity that both, both, listen, both rise up above the surface and both possess an expansive depth that provide a sense of the awe and majesty of who God is because both male and female are formed in the image of the triune God. Both. And listen, over the next two weeks, we're gonna drill down into this text 
and see what Peter has to say about what it means to live as a sojourning wife or a sojourning husband who doesn't take your cues from this culture. And we're starting in verse 7, and here's why. Because, listen, there's, there, there, there are women in the church and there are women in the culture who they, they, they cannot palate what this text has to say because they've been in such abusive relationships and environments. And so here's, so when I, I thought about how we were going to handle this, so I thought, let's flip it on its head and let's come after the men first and lay the framework for what they are supposed to do and what they are supposed to be in the context of marriage before we come back and look at what Peter's words and admonitions are to the wives. And so that's how we're going to handle it. That's what we're going to look at today as we begin to drill down into verse 7. Now, before we get into the text, I know we're not done with the introduction yet. Before we get into the text, we talked last week about how as citizens of God's kingdom amongst these earthly kingdoms, every culture and kingdom, there's some untangling that has to be done. Untangling of views and untangling of perspectives that we just are naturally ingrained in us because of the cultures and times in which we live. And there's some untangling that has to be done here for us before we move into the text as we think about a biblical vision of masculinity. A biblical vision of masculinity, there's some, there's some, there's some distorted errors in our culture, and there's at least three of them. There's probably more, but at least three. The first one is this, is that there's some men who have embraced what I would say is a feminized vision of masculinity. They've embraced a feminized vision. Now listen, let me just go ahead and be very clear. There is nothing wrong with femininity. Femininity is a beautiful thing. It's a God-ordained thing. It's a majestic thing in the lives of holy women who hope in God. But it is not what men were created for. It's not what they were created for. Kevin will tell you more about that next week. Two. Two. Listen, there's, there's also individuals who've embraced what I would say is a flaccid vision of masculinity. A flaccid vision. Listen, there's a massive problem with men lacking vitality. And I'm not talking about physical vitality or sexual vitality. I'm talking about spiritual vitality and emotional availability in their homes with their wives. They are incredibly flaccid and passive, like Adam was in the garden. Whenever Eve is tempted with the fruit, he's there alongside of her. He takes and eats along with her without leading, without taking initiative, without saying, no, put the brakes on. He's incredibly passive and withdrawn. He sits back and offloads his responsibility. And there are men in our culture who have done the same. And they've offloaded the responsibility for leading their homes, loving their children, raising their, their, their sons and daughters, and, and discipling their sons and daughters. They've offloaded that to the women folk. While they pursue the agendas of their companies, while they pursue their own hobbies, and there are many men within our culture and oftentimes within the church as well um, who, who have offloaded that responsibility. And there's nothing wrong with working hard. In fact, we're, we're, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, Paul says. There's nothing wrong with working hard. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a little downtime. But when you live to work or you live to play and you see your family as being in the way of those things and you just withdraw, you don't engage, you don't take initiative, you don't lead in any kind of capacity in the home, there is a problem with that. There's a lack of vitality. And some men are so flaccid in their vision of masculinity. They just want to sit back 
and not press in and give leadership. Listen, one of the ways this is so evident, is so evident is because some of us, listen, when our wives aren't here, we're not either. The third, the third vision of masculinity that we've got to untangle from a biblical one is this, is the, not only the feminized and, and, and flaccid, but also the feral man. What the word feral means? It means wild, uncontrolled. Most of us are familiar with that term feral because we talk about feral pigs or feral hogs uh, that have run rampant all across the southern plains of our nation. They used to be domesticated animals that got released into the wild, and now they're just running rampant and causing all kinds of destruction on, on, on cultivated land. In, uh, in 2013, the estimated population was 6 million feral pigs that caused billions of dollars in property damage every year in both wild and agricultural lands because they, the way that they eat, they root up the ground and they tear it up so that crops can't grow. The things that are growing there get torn up and the erosion begins to take place. It's just a nasty, messy situation. And there are some men who've embraced a very feral and wild and uncontrolled vision of masculinity as well. And in the same way that those pigs destroy hundreds of acres, those men destroy the lives of those who are closest to them because they've embraced this wild, uncontrolled vision of masculinity. They look more like Adam after the fall, ruling with a heavy hand and domineering and oppressive with unquestioned and absolute authority. Now listen, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with masculinity. There's nothing wrong with strength. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful thing in the lives of men who love and lead and look like Jesus rather than Adam. See, some of us this morning have got to untangle some of that vision of masculinity from popular perspectives in our culture. And I think Peter's going to help us do that. So let's look at verse 7. In verse 7, Peter talks to us about what it looks, or at least a part of what it looks to love and lead and look like Jesus as men. And the first thing that he says to us right out of the gate is this. He says, men, if you're going to love like Jesus, if you're going to lead like Jesus, if you're going to look like Jesus, it's not like Adam. You've, you must. You, he admonishes us to show our wives honor. He says, you've got to show her honor. Now, the word honor there in the text literally means the, the, the value that's assigned to something or the price that gets plastered onto something, the sticker that gets placed upon whatever it is that you're trying to sell or auction, right? The price itself, the price that's paid for it or received for a person or a thing that is to be sold, a valuing by which that, that worth is fixed. In other words, what Peter is admonishing you and I to do, men, listen carefully. He's admonishing us to fulfill our role as the head, as the leader of our homes in a way that esteems our wives in a very high manner, consistent with their true worth. That you should treat your wives in a way that recognizes the value that she has rather than diminishes her value. That you should show her honor by recognizing and treating her with value as opposed to diminishing that value because it is, it, is, it is possible, and you know this, it is possible, it is possible to appraise and to esteem something to be less valuable than it actually is. Isn't it? How many of you guys are pickers? 
not your nose, like garage sales and flea markets and places like that, right? Anybody ever been to a Canton? All of you, are, most of you are lying right now because nobody's raising their hand. Like lots of us enjoy, like some of you enjoy rummaging through old stuff. And you just go and you, you pick through these bins at Canton or you go and pick through these bins and shoe boxes at garage sales or at, at, at estate sales. And you pick through all this stuff. And a part of the reason you enjoy picking through all that stuff is because you think one day you're going to hit the mother load. Right? You're going to find something that's been priced way below what it should sell for. Right? In fact, in, in, in 2013, there was a story that hit uh, the NBC News outlets in New York City about a family that picked up a bowl at a garage sale for $3. Three bucks. Most of us have that in our wallets right now. The bowl, it, it, didn't, it, wasn't anything, it didn't look like anything special. It appeared like much, many other cereal bowls or stoop bowls that you might find at a garage sale. It was five inches in diameter with a little sawtooth pattern etched around the outside. It was made out of ceramic. looked like maybe you could have picked it up you know, a few years back at Pier 1 or World Market. But upon further investigation, this bowl that this family bought on the block, had, they had no idea where it was actually from. It was from the Northern Song Dynasty, which ruled China from 960 to 1127. And it was the, that dynasty was known for its cultural and artistic advances. And the only other bowl of similar size and design that, had, that, that people knew of had been in a collection in a British museum for more than 60 years. This bowl was over a thousand years old, and it was eventually appraised at Sotheby's Auction House in New York City. And when they appraised it, they discovered it was worth $2.2 million. That's the mother load you're looking for in Canton, isn't it? At $2.2 million. They bought it for three bucks. Eventually, in March of 2013, it sold to this antiquities dealer in London, where it's now in his possession. But listen, it is possible to appraise something and to price something and to assign value to something that is far lower than what it should be appraised, esteemed, and valued at. And some of us have done that with our wives. We may be in fact, what may be in fact priceless, we may place a sticker of a buck fifty on. Some of us have done that with our wives. We have a pitifully low estimation of women. We treat our wives like a dollar store rug. We walk all over as opposed to this ornate, priceless, oriental tapestry that no one ever gets on clearance. We treat our wives and young ladies and students, some of you, how you treat the, the, the young ladies in your classroom, husbands, some of you treat your wives as if, I'm going to speak your language here for a moment, as if they were just another girl in a country song. All right, Maddie and Tay, are you familiar with them? Yeah. And their song, Girl in a Country Song, listen to how they respond to the pervasive culture that dishonors Women, they say, well, I wish I had some shoes on my two bare feet, but I can't because he likes me barefooted. And it's getting kind of cold in these painted on cut off jeans. I hate the way this bikini top chafes. Do I really have to wear it all day? To which all the men in the background of the video say, yeah, baby. I hear you over there on your tailgate whistling, saying, hey, girl, but you know I ain't listening because I got a name. And to you, it ain't pretty little thing, honey or baby. It's driving me redneck crazy. Unless I'm speaking some of your language right now. 
Being the girl in a country song, how in the world did it go so wrong? Like all we're good for is looking good for you and your friends on the weekend. Nothing more. We used to get a little respect. Now we're lucky if we even get to climb up in your truck, keep our mouths shut and ride along and be the girl in a country song. And it, it grieves me that my daughter, who will be five in April, is growing up in the midst of a pervasive culture that would one day view her as a girl in cut-off shorts, barefoot, in a bikini top who rides in the back of a pickup truck to be looked at by men on the weekends. It grieves me And men, it should grieve you as well. It should grieve you as well. That the earthly kingdom in which we live does not honor women. And if we're to be citizens of God's kingdom, then we've got to, we must We're admonished to show honor to our wives, to show honor to the young ladies in our classes, young men, singles, the women that you would pursue as a wife to honor her, to show her honor, treat her consistent with her value and her worth, not as an object to be stared at. That you would value her sensitivity, that you would value her inner beauty, that you would value her compassion, that you would value her holiness, that you would value those things which are to be valued amongst God's people. And listen, one of the reasons, one of the reasons both inside and outside the church that young men are emerging into adulthood with these particular perspectives it's because they have not seen their fathers honor their mother. They haven't seen it. And if boys grow into young men in a vacuum of true and biblical masculinity where women are honored and their value is esteemed high as God's daughters, as those formed in his image, if they grow into young men in a vacuum where that is not modeled and patterned, it's not talked about and it's not seen, they are going to find a show and tell exhibit somewhere. Someone's going to show them what it looks like to be a man. Someone's going to show them what it looks like and tell them what it looks like to relate to women. And it grieves me. It grieves me that this is not just true outside, but also inside many times the church. Husbands, are you treating your wives with honor? Are you treating them with honor? Peter says, he goes on, he says, here's why. Here's why. Where, where, where does that worth come from? Where does that value come from? Why should you treat them with honor? Second thing that Peter tells us is because even though our roles are different, our standing is the same. Even though our roles are distinct, our standing is the same. To say it another way, that we are equal in person but distinct in function. And listen, this is not a unique, something unique to husbands and wives. You see it all across, 
all across various facets of human life. You see it in the workplace. You see supervisors are equal in person but distinct in function from those they supervise. Professors are equal in person but distinct in function from those they teach. Pastors are, distinct, are equal, in, equal in person, distinct in function from those who are their parishioners. And Peter says that the reason we must show her honor is because we are equal in person. The way that you lead her, the way that you, the way that you guide, the way that you take initiative in your home is in a way that honors her value because you are not above her in any stretch of the imagination when it comes to your standing before God. You are on equal ground. Look at what he says in the text. He says, the reason you show her honor is since they are, your wives are, heirs with you of the grace of life. They're heirs with you of the grace of life. That means that men and women equally have an inheritance from God. Back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter talks about this inheritance that we have, that we receive from God, that's imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us, whom he is keeping for himself here on earth. There's an inheritance coming. And listen, men, that inheritance does not come through you to her. (laughs) It comes to her and to you on equal footings, that you are heirs together. And this would have been so radical in Peter's day. It would have been so radical. It would have turned the tables upside down in Peter's day. Because in Peter's day, you might have been, if you were a woman, you may have had a dowry, but you didn't have an inheritance. Inheritance was for the men. In fact, there were many families who kept having babies after uh, girl after girl after girl. And so eventually they started tossing them out on the trash pile and they kept trying for boys. They kept trying for boys for someone to carry on the family name, for someone to be the recipients of that inheritance to be passed down through a male lineage. But Peter says co-heirs, equal heirs on level footing that it comes to both. Because both Genesis 1, 26 and 27 are formed, created in the image of God. There is equal standing. So in terms of value, you are nowhere above her. Nowhere above her. It's equal footing. But that equal footing and that equal standing does not diminish the differentiation or distinction of roles or functions that are to be played. If you go back up in the verse 1 that we read, Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, Kevin's going to tell you what that means next week, all right? But for now, for now, listen, there is equal footing, distinct roles, distinct roles. And one of the reasons this is so unpalatable for some of us, so unpalatable for some of us, like it just, it just takes bitter to our tongues, is because we've been in environments where men have taken their leadership cues from worldly wisdom as opposed to biblical truth. From worldly wisdom as opposed to biblical truth. Biblically, biblically, listen, there is great reward and there is great, um, there, 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 there's great, um, there's incredible privilege of, 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 of being able to lead in, some kind of, in that kind of capacity. But listen, most, it's very rewarding to lead. But you know what it is? It's an added responsibility. And most men don't see it that way. They only see the perks and privileges that come with positions of leadership. And they've been functioning with worldly wisdom 
inside their homes as if, because they have a distinct role to give leadership in their homes, then somehow that means they get all the perks and the privileges. And so they function as the CEO of their homes rather than the sacrificial servant shepherd. They function as a CEO making policy changes by sending out inner office memos without ever consulting their wives. They function as a CEO by barking orders. Listen, the fact that you have a different role to lead as a head doesn't mean you get to bark orders. It means you get to serve her. It doesn't mean you get to dictate, but you get to sacrifice. It doesn't mean that you should expect her to conform to your wishes. It means that you should expect your life to be about conforming to her needs. This means you don't get to use her, but you love her. In the same way Jesus loved and laid his life down for his people. One of the reasons it's so impalatable is because so many men, so many men, they love the idea of perks and privileges of, of, of leading, but they shirk the responsibility to sacrifice, serve, and shepherd Listen, some, some of us in the room, listen, we think pastors have a pretty sweet gig, right? We get, to, we get to read the Bible all day, and we get to pray all day, and we get to hang out in coffee shops and talk to people all day, and we get to play golf whenever we want to play golf. We get to go hunting and fishing whenever we want to hunt and fish. We've got a pretty sweet gig. We've got all this kind of spare time, right? And so mo- many, m- some of us think that about those of us who, whom God has called to shepherd Jesus' church. But listen, listen, it is amazing the fact that I get, I get it, it blows my mind, I tell you this often, it blows my mind that my job, my vocation is to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, to teach the Bible. It blows my mind. But listen, every good pastor, every good pastor, they feel an incredible burden for every heart that God has entrusted to their oversight. As Paul talks about feeling a burden for the churches that he's planted. There's not a day that doesn't go by whenever some one of you comes to mind that I do not rejoice and simultaneously feel burdened to know whether or not I'm leading you into holiness and Christ-likeness. Because leadership doesn't come with perks and privileges. It comes with added responsibility. And men... Some of you need to wake up to that reality. And I'm not just talking to you this morning. <laughs> I'm looking in the mirror for myself. She has value because you're on equal footing, equal footing, but different roles. So how do you show her honor? I'm going to drill down on a couple more things and I'm going to get out your way. All right? I thought I'd preach for about an hour and a half this morning since so I'm not preaching next week. I can make up for it. I'm just kidding. Two more things. How do you show her honor? How, how, do, how, do, how does this begin to flesh itself out? Listen to what Peter says. He says, you have to relate to her consistent with what you know about her. You have to relate to her consistent with what you know about her. Peter says, the manner in which you are to show honor to your wives is by living with them in an understanding way. There's a continual 
admonition there, that it's not something that you do one time whenever you get married. It's not something you do one time on your fifth anniversary or 10th anniversary, but it's a continual daily process of working out, relating to her, consistent with what you know to be true about her. In other words, in other words, what you know about her should impact and inform and inform how you treat her. As you live with her in an understanding way, begin to wrap your mind around how God has wired her and who she is. And you begin to act in ways towards her that are consistent with what you now know to be true about her. Listen, marriage does not end on the wedding day. It begins. And you don't stop learning about your spouse the moment that you say, I do. Really, you begin learning about them for the next 50 years, 60 years. And if God has, gives grace, 70 or 80 years of your lives. And listen, some of us, when I say us, I mean us, I mean us. Some of us have been banging our heads against the wall for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, wishing that our wives would change. So it would be easier when in reality, when in reality, what you have failed to do is to look at her, learn about her, and treat her consistent with what you know to be true about who she is. In an understanding way. This presses out in two ways. First one. First one, you gotta learn to speak her heart language. Listen, when missionaries, mission agencies that translate the Bible into other languages, when they go into unreached people groups and they begin to try and these, lots of times these people groups, they don't have any written language. All they have is words and vocalizations of, of, of sounds. And so when, when organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators go into these unreached people groups that have no written language, the, they spend years studying the language. Years studying that language phonetically, how it sounds. And then they spend years developing a script to actually begin to put that language down on paper. Then they go back to the Greek and the Hebrew and they translate from the Greek and the Hebrew into that language, that script they devised for this people group so that that people group can hear the gospel in their heart language. They may understand brokenly another language, but it grips them in their heart language. And listen, men, some of us need to spend time, more time than we do, studying the heart languages of our wives. Some of you know these as love languages. Right? Gifts or quality time or physical affection or acts of service or words of affirmation. Some of us, some of us have, been, have spent years of our life trying to speak French to a woman who only understands Russian How does she respond? Does she respond to gifts when you show up with a box of chocolates and flowers and a necklace? Does she respond? Does she hear in her heart that she's loved when you carve out four hours on a Saturday afternoon and you find someone to keep the kids and you go off with her and you do take a walk around the lake and you dream and you talk with quality time? Does she respond? Does she feel loved? Whenever you come along inside her and encourage her and affirm her, you say, baby, man, you, out of all the women, you excel them all, right? Biblical, that's biblical. 
Oh, you're such a good mom, so nurturing. I see the way you draw these things out of our kids. I want to affirm you in that. Does she respond with physical affection whenever you hold her hand in those moments when she's not expecting you? You come up behind her and give her a hug. Have you been speaking French to a woman who only stands Russian? You've got to learn to speak her heart language. You've got to look at her, understand her, live with her in an understanding way. But not only do you have to speak her heart language, listen, you've got to learn to treat her with tenderness. And this is, a, this is a biggie. You have to learn to treat her with tenderness. Peter says that you show honor to, the, to your wives, to the women as the weaker vessel. Listen, at least in the days before CrossFit gyms, there was a good chance that your wife was physically weaker than you were. Now it's kind of a toss-up at times. But still, physiologically, the way men are built, they're built with more muscle mass in certain places that would make them stronger, be able to exert their will and, and dominate physically in a relationship. But Peter says, you've got to cut that at the root. You've got to cut it at the root and begin to learn to treat them with tenderness and understanding. And this flushes out in so many ways. It flushes out physically. Listen, some men, some men are just cowards. I told you I was going to take the gloves off this morning. Some men are just cowards. There are little boys in men's bodies who have never learned how to settle a disagreement apart from violence. And ladies, if you are in a relationship, if your husband or someone that you know is physically abusive, you need to get help. I'm not telling you to get a divorce. That's a subject for a whole other sermon. What I'm telling you is you need to get help. Man, are you tender with your wives physically? Or are you rough and abrasive? Does she fear your hand? Are you tender with your wives emotionally? Listen, some men were raised in environments in environments where women were treated as second-class citizens or domestic servants, and you may have inherited a manner of relating to your wives in such a way that you are harsh with them with your words. And I'm not talking about the misunderstandings as you pass handing off kids. I'm not talking about the, the, the times in which maybe things are taken the wrong way, but I'm talking about patterns of speech and behavior that intentionally or unintentionally diminish and strip their value and worth away from them, treating their opinions and their dreams and their desires and their wishes as if they don't matter, treating them as if your agenda is the only one that matters and they exist to serve you. So you're emotionally oppressive and not tender, and not tender. Now some of you may object and say, I ain't never raised my hand to my wife. Maybe not, but you have left bruises all over her soul. With your words and your temperamental tirades, you left her hemorrhaging inside. Are you tender to her emotionally? Third, spiritually. Listen, some men, some of you think you're the pope of your home and not the pastor. Pastor. 
that you're the Pope. So everything comes through you. you. You're so armed with arguments and logic and biblical understanding that you just kind of railroad every conversation. And what you say goes in your home. There's no room for varying discussions or opinions, particularly on, even on secondary issues. You're not treating her very tender spiritually, loving and leading her to an understanding of the truth and application of the truth by shepherding as a pastor, not a pope. And sexually. And we could spend a lot of time on this this morning. But I don't have a lot of time to spend. We'll come back to it at some point. Let me just say this. Some, some men's view of sex inside marriage has been so shaped by the pornography industry. So shaped by the pornography industry that you are sexually frustrated right now because your wife will not do things that you've seen on a screen or in a magazine. Because your wife will not act in certain ways and respond in certain ways that you think are supposed to be gratifying and the norm. And so you're sexually frustrated because you see her as a series of holes that exist for your pleasure. And you do not treat her tenderly in the bedroom. Do you live with her in an understanding way? Do you speak her heart language and do you treat her tenderly? And I'll close with this. I want you to notice the result that happens if you don't. It's one of the most sobering verses in all the Bible. In all the Bible for me. It says if you show her honor, if you live with her in an understanding way, he says the, the, the result of that is so that your prayers would not be hindered. But if you refuse to show her honor, if you dishonor her, if you neglect her, if you abdicate your responsibility, if you view her as your property, if you act towards her, uh, if you refuse to act towards her on the basis of what you know to be true about her, he says, then your prayers will be hindered. In other words, God is going to stop you up. That word hindered literally means to be cut off. And it's a passive tense verb. I make a big deal out of syntax sometimes. This is one of the places I think it's warranted because he's not talking about you cutting yourself off. He's talking about God cutting off your prayers. Not cutting off your relationship, but cutting off your fellowship. He's gonna jam the frequency of your fellowship with him. Because he takes it's so seriously. Why would he jam the frequency of your fellowship with him and cut off your prayers if you don't honor your wives? I don't think Peter answers that question here, but I think Paul does in Ephesians 5 because the husband-wife relationship exists to be a picture of the Jesus-church relationship. So if you're not honoring your wives, man, God takes that seriously because he himself his character is now being impugned because you are supposed to be a picture of this vertical dynamic in this horizontal relationship. And if you fail to do so, he says, I'm gonna jam your frequency, I'm gonna stop you up. In fact, some of us men in the room this morning, we are so spiritually constipated right now that our souls are cramping. Our souls are cramping because we don't pray. And one of the reasons we don't pray and won't pray is because we know things aren't right here. 
One of the reasons when we have corporate prayer times in here every Sunday, some of the men sit in silence, not not even praying silently, but they just sit in silence. It's because they know things aren't right here. Some of us don't prayerfully sing in church because we know things that aren't right. And listen, when that's the case, sin is not confessed. The glory of God is not adored. The grace of God does not produce gratitude. The mercy of God does not melt your heart. The holiness of God pushes you away rather than pulls you in as you sit in this unconfessed sin of spiritual constipation and everything gets backed up. You feel it. You feel it. As God cuts off prayers, you don't feel like your prayers, even when you do pray, it feels like they're just bouncing back right at you because things aren't good here. God takes it seriously. And it's very sobering. Now listen, I know I beat up on you a little bit. <laughs> but I'll, I'll be honest with you, man, this text has landed some body blows on me. In fact, earlier on Monday this week, I was like, I, I can't even get up there and preach this thing. <laughs> like, who am I? Karen said the same thing. Who are you <laughs> to get up there and, and talk about this? <laughs> I, can't, I, I, I don't even know that I can stand up and say some of these things. But then it hit me. Then it hit me on Tuesday, about 1 p.m. at Starbucks, it hit me. Shannon, as Paul says in Corinthians, you're not preaching yourself, but Christ. You're not preaching yourself, but Christ. Because I do not perfectly do this. None of us in this room do, but there is one who has. There is one who has shown honor to his bride at every turn and every juncture. There is one who is related to his his bride in such a way that shows that he values her by laying his life down for her and in her place. There is one who lives to make intercession for his people whose prayers are never hindered. And his name is Jesus. And men, this morning, I want to call you to look at him. Not me. Gaze at him. Not me. And as you gaze at him, one of the things that's going to lead you to do is some of you need to come in repentance. Some of you need to repent from the feminized vision of masculinity you've embraced or the feral or the flaccid vision of masculinity you've embraced. Some of you need to repent from refusing to from, to, to show honor to your wives and treating her in a way that diminishes her value as opposed to recognizes it. Some of you need to come and you need to repent of, of not speaking her heart language or treating her tenderly. Some of you need to come and look at Christ who has shown honor to his bride, who has treated us with understanding, who has moved toward us with love. And maybe you need to come and you need to kneel here at the altar. Maybe that's just a physical movement you need to make and do that. Maybe you need to turn around right there where you are at in your seat and do that. Maybe you need to go into the back of the room and do that. Maybe you need to grab your wife by the hand and go do that right now. Not later this afternoon, not tomorrow, not next week, maybe right now. And if that's you, David's going to come and lead us in a song. The band's going to come lead us in a song, one song as we wrap things up today. 
and I'll give you space to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, today we come, we thank you for your goodness. You're so good to us. You're indeed a good father who has loved us well. You're indeed a God who's able to bring life from death, to bring light from darkness, to to help us embrace a biblical view of what it means to be men, to show honor, to be tender, to be understanding, to lead and take initiative. God, some of us today, we need to fall on our knees before you in repentance as we stare at Jesus so that we might love and lead like him and not like the first Adam, but like the second. Would you give us the grace to do so? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to come kneel, kneel where you're seated, go wherever it is in this room you need to go and pray and pray. And men, on your way out, if this struck a nerve with you today, I want to make something available to you. There's a resource, a book at the back. We gave it away a couple of years ago on Father's Day. On your way out, if you want a copy, it's free to you about biblical manhood. God calls us to live as sojourning husbands. Would you sing and pray and take a moment to repent?